You can listen to our new audiobook, I Trust When Dark My Road, A Lutheran View of Depression. It's voiced by the book's author, Pastor Todd Peppercorn, and includes an introduction voiced by Pastor Matt Harrison, President of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Just go to issuesetc.org, enter your email address, and we'll send you a link to the audiobook, I Trust When Dark My Road, A Lutheran View of Depression, issuesetc.org, and enter your email address. Yeah, the new gender order speaks to a kind of queered manhood and queered womanhood, and really it all kind of blends down into one androgynous gender smoothie. The majority of women who are post-abortive say that they would have kept their child had they had the emotional and financial resources to do so. So we need to speak to her and we need to support her. It's really become a cacophony of bizarreness within evangelicalism in the NAR as they try to out-Jewish each other in kind of resurrecting and trying to smuggle in to Christianity practices that are Jewish. See, the Creator has established an order, and it's our job to honor it. So the pastor stands in the stead of the head. The head is male. This is not because we're anti-woman. It's because we're pro-Christ. Farmers in South Dakota listen to issues, etc., while combining our corn and feeding the world. We talk a lot about properly distinguishing between law and gospel here on Issues Etc., but do we find in Scripture itself examples of God's Word being properly distinguished in terms of law and gospel? Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc., coming to you live from the studios of Lutheran Public Radio in Collinsville, Illinois. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. We'll talk about law and gospel in the Christian life with Dr. Corey Moss. He's author of a recent column for the Lutheran Witness magazine titled, Difficult or Easy? We'll go through listener email and the Issues Etc. comment line. Then Dr. Bradley Berzer of Hillsdale College will join us for a biography on Christopher Columbus. Dr. Corey Moss is chairman and associate professor of history at Hillsdale College and author of a recent column, Difficult or Easy? Dr. Moss, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So what in a nutshell is the difference between God's word of law and God's word of gospel? Well, in a nutshell, I'd actually want to emphasize two differences, namely the, the difference in the natures of each and then the difference in the purpose of each. So to, to keep it as simple as possible, we think of God's word of law as, as a word of command, do this, don't do this, and the word of gospel being a word of promise, uh, the promise of what God himself has done for us in Christ, namely secure our forgiveness, life, and salvation. And so the purpose of the command is to inform us how to act and to inform us when we have not acted that way. And the purpose of the promise, as I've already said, is uh, to forgive us when we do break the law, that is, when we sin. Is this difference difficult to grasp? Well, as long as we keep it simple like that, it's, it's not really difficult to grasp at all. Many of your Lutheran listeners probably learned at some point in Sunday school or confirmation this little acronym SOS as a helpful reminder of, of what each is and does. So what does the law do? It, it shows our sins. And what does the gospel do? It shows us our Savior or shows us our salvation. So that kind of thing really does illustrate that this is simple enough that even children can grasp it. It is not difficult at all. Why does C.F.W. Walther, who kind of, as you say, wrote the book on this, distinction between law and gospel? 
Why does he say that distinguishing between long gospel is, quote, the most difficult and highest Christian art? Yeah, that is kind of amusing. So C.F.W. Walther did indeed write you know, the book on the proper distinction between long gospel, which probably every LCMS pastor has on his shelf, certainly looked at it in seminary. And he does say that, but he says it immediately after having said that the distinction between long gospel is easy. And so this is kind of a conundrum, but he explains very quickly by saying that when he means that it's easy, he means it's easy to conceptually distinguish between the two, the commands of God and the promises of God, that the difficulty comes in applying those in a pastoral way. So think about a lot of things. You know, we, can, we can sit in a classroom and we memorize the definitions and it's all very easy, but then we get home at night and open our books to do our math homework and actually applying the concepts we understand can become incredibly difficult. And that's really what Walther means is that, yep, the definitions are easy, we understand them, but these are not merely intellectual concepts. These are tools meant to be applied in a pastoral context. And knowing when and how and even why to apply them can be quite difficult. How would you explain that? Why is the application of God's Word of Law and Gospel difficult? Well, it can be difficult for a few reasons. So, for example, let's start with the question of, of when do you apply law and gospel? Well, I suppose in a very, very broad sense, there's never a bad time since this is God's word. Both his word of law and his word of gospel are good, Scripture tells us. But there might be cases in which someone, for example, does not know the law, and so you will want to tell them. Another case might be someone who actually knows the law, knows that he or she has broken the law, feels terribly burdened by that guilt. So what you want to do is not to remind them yet again, hey, you've broken the law, but but you want to bring them the comfort of the gospel. And so that when requires some pastoral discernment. Most people do not walk around publicly or necessarily even in private conversation with their pastor just kind of advertising, I feel really burdened by the law, or I feel really secure in my sin, sort of giving us some explicit cues as to which of God's words we should be proclaiming. So the when is one difficulty. Let me just say that the, the why is perhaps another difficulty. So when we talk about the law, we talk about three uses of the law, and we can perhaps come back to that later. But the second use, what our confessions call the chief use, is to make us aware of our sins, to, to, to hold the mirror up to our face and to show us that we are, in fact, sinners. It has an accusatory function. But there is a third use of the law, which is meant to guide the Christian, the one who is saved, the one who is forgiven and redeemed, to inform them of how they are to act in a God-pleasing way. And we sometimes think, well, this is why I'm proclaiming the law at this moment. You know, I'm, I'm teaching a Sunday school class. I'm, I'm encouraging the students to honor their father and mother. But the why that I am teaching may not be the why that a student is hearing. So to just stick with that example that I use in the article, the student who is in Sunday school on a particular Sunday morning who had just gotten in a knockdown, dragout argument with mom and dad and had been very disrespectful a half hour ago, he's going to hear a discussion of the fourth commandment very differently. He's not going to hear it as if I am teaching this for the purpose of instruction and exhortation. He's going to probably hear it as an accusation. So these are all things that, that 
we want to, to the best of our ability, take into consideration as pastors and and even as laity applying law and gospel to one another. But it's not always immediately obvious when to speak which, how to speak which, and even why we might speak. So where do we find law and gospel being rightly applied in Scripture itself? Well, I, I suppose the, the generic answer is pretty much everywhere. All of Scripture is God's Word, and since law and gospel are the way we categorize God's words, God himself is going to be the best distinguisher of law and gospel. But I think to bring the point home, we've got a couple of really good examples that potentially highlight some of the difficulty. So I'm thinking of, in Acts chapter 16, I mentioned this in the article, you have the Philippian jailer who is is trembling and terrified and he asks Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? Paul and Silas respond with the good gospel answer, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that doesn't really shock us. What do we need to do for salvation? We don't need to do anything. We just need to, to trust the promises of Christ, trust him, trust the gospel. And yet there's an episode in Matthew chapter 19 when a very, very similar question is asked of Jesus himself. This is the the episode of the rich young man who comes to Jesus and asks him, you know, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? So the wording is a bit different. What must I do to be saved? What must I do to have eternal life? But it's effectively the same question. And strangely enough, Jesus does not answer that question by saying, you know, believe in me. Instead, he says, quote, keep the commandments. So that, that clearly seems like a proclamation of the law, keep the commandments. You read a little bit further, and the, the young man says, well, which commandments? And so Jesus rattles off a few, and the young man says, well, yeah, I've already done all of that. And so we, we want to ask ourselves, why do we get in Scripture, which will not contradict itself, why do we get the same question being asked and two different answers being offered? Are there really two means of salvation, belief in Christ and doing the commandments? Or is Jesus doing something a little bit different than Paul is doing. I want to propose, and I don't think this is at all controversial, I want to propose that that Jesus himself is rightly applying law and gospel, and specifically law in this context. So, for example, when the young man says, well, which commandments? You get the clear sense that he's trying to find a loophole. He's trying to justify himself. You see it again when Jesus rattles off a few, and the man says, oh, yeah, yeah, I've totally kept those. This is a young man who is very secure in the belief that he's doing everything right. He's not a sinner deserving of judgment or condemnation. And this is why Jesus keeps pressing the law. You haven't yet recognized your sin, and therefore it would not be becoming to announce to you forgiveness of sins, that that would make no sense to you. So I'm going to keep pressing the law to impress upon you that you are in fact a sinner in need of forgiveness. The Philippian jailer, on the other hand, his trembling, his fear, implicitly his his fear of God and therefore judgment, allows Paul to simply say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. What's the danger of proclaiming the gospel to the unrepentant? Well, this is a good question. So let me start off by saying what the danger is not. Uh, the, The danger is not that you are speaking something that is untrue. What I mean by that is it, it just is true that, that Christ died for the sins of the world, and so it would not be untrue to say to an unrepentant sinner, 
Christ died for your sins. The problem is, although it's true, it's unhelpful. It's unhelpful in this sense, that the person hearing that is very likely going to hear that as a kind of justification for not being repentant. He's going to get the impression that, well, God forgives my sins, therefore it doesn't really matter that I sin. So it implicitly grants a kind of permission to remain in an unrepentant state. And of course, we we know that that's a very dangerous place to be. So that would be the chief danger of proclaiming the gospel to those who are not thinking that they need to hear the gospel. What's the danger of proclaiming the law to those who are repentant? And I would say the same thing here, that the, the danger is not that what you're telling them is something that is untrue. The danger is that they're going to hear something that further burdens their conscience and might even give the impression that their sins are not forgiven, perhaps cannot be forgiven. So if they are expressing sorrow and repentance and desiring forgiveness, if rather than proclaim that forgiveness, one chooses to further proclaim the law, the distinct impression that one might get is, well, I guess maybe these are the kinds of sins that God can't forgive. And so these are the two dangers that, for example, uh, CFW Walther talks about, and this goes back to Luther himself, that the chief dangers of sinners are either absolute despair of their sin and the, the belief that these sins cannot be forgiven, which of course is to make God a liar, or the alternative Uh, the the danger of pride, of thinking that I don't even need forgiveness because I have fulfilled the law, which, again, would make God himself a liar. So, again, in both cases, calling God a liar is a very dangerous place to be. Dr. Corey Moss is our guest. We're talking about law and gospel in the Christian life. On the other side, does the law only accuse? This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we are rolling right along in our adventures in Acts with Paul in the Roman Tribune. Paul brought to the council. Paul divides the room, plot to kill Paul, and Paul sent to Felix. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider. The Gospels report Jesus saying some rather shocking things. For instance, in Luke 14, he tells his disciples, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. How can Jesus say such things? What about some of the other more difficult teachings of Scripture? Do you have questions about them? Well, we answer many of these in the October issue of The Lutheran Witness. Pick up your copy today at cph.org slash witness. The Lutheran Witness, interpreting the world from a Lutheran perspective. For sinners only. You're listening to Issues Etc. Our Christian faith is under constant attack, and we must be proactive in keeping our children in the church. At Faith Lutheran School in Plano, Texas, we believe that an education rooted in God's Word is one that stands against the very gates of hell. Nothing in this world is more important. 
Offering a rigorous classical Lutheran education, we provide in-person and live online remote learning opportunities for preschool through grade 12. To learn more, visit flsplano.org, flsplano.org. Luther Academy provides additional theological education for our mission partners around the world, specifically pastors who are asking for additional education but do not have the necessary resources in their own church bodies. By donating to Luther Academy today, you will be supplying food, housing, books, professors, and travel for Lutheran pastors who attend our conferences. To learn more about Luther Academy and how you can donate today, visit lutheracademy.com. LutherAcademy.com. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're talking about law and gospel in the Christian life with Dr. Corey Moss, author of a recent column for the Lutheran Witness magazine titled Difficult or Easy. Here is what the Reverend Dr. Daniel Preuss had to say about our Issues Etc. Book of the Month for October. This book by Dr. Saunders is a gem. Not only does it convey extremely valuable information to enable pastors and lay people alike to establish helpful relationships with those experiencing a mental illness, it also demonstrates that it is compassion that drove Martin Luther and should also move us to reach out to those battling spiritual and mental challenges. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for October is called Martin Luther on Mental Health. It will give you a better understanding of mental health from a Christian perspective. Find out more about it at our website, issuesetc.org, or you can call Concordia Publishing House and order the book, 1-800-325-3040, 1-800-325-3040. Dr. Moss, you were talking about the accusing function of the law before the break. Does God's law only accuse? It does not only accuse. This is the kind of thing that that we sometimes get wrong. The Lutheran confessions are very, very clear that the law always accuses. And so this goes back to the difficulty, the question of the difficulty of applying law and gospel. I might think that I am merely explaining, this is what God would like from you. But that might be heard in an accusatory way rather than an instructional way. Nonetheless, While the law does always accuse, because we are always, according to our flesh, sinful, it does not only accuse. So the the formula of Concord, for example, one of our Lutheran confessional documents, is very, very clear that there are, in fact, three uses of the law, that the second use or the second function of the law is explicitly to accuse. But the first is to, to restrain sin, that function as a curb. And the third use of the law is an instructional use. And I think we do ourselves a disservice if we think that the law always accusing really means that it only accuses. What is the place of the law then in the life of the Christian? Well, in the life of the Christian, it's going to certainly still have that accusatory function because, again, the Christian remains in his flesh, still a sinner, and so the old man needs to be reminded of this and be induced to repentance. But the unique function that the law plays in the life of the Christian is what we refer to as that third function, that instructional function. So being redeemed and being able to to love the God who has forgiven us, we are going to want 
to do God's will. We are going to want to avoid those things he would have us avoid and do those things he would have us do. But just because our sin has been forgiven, we have been redeemed and called as children of God, that does not automatically mean that we always know what is God-pleasing. And so I think this is, this is a really important point. Some of, some of the controversy that we find ourselves in occasionally when, when talking about the third use of the law is we think of the third use as a sort of exhortative use, that the third use of the law is exhorting Christians to you know, do good works. And one reply to that, that that I hear often is, well, you don't need to do that because the Christian, by his new nature, his redeemed nature, just wants to do good works. He doesn't need to be told to do good works. And my response to that is, well, sure, but that assumes that he or she knows what good works are or knows what sins are to avoid. And I think one of the things that is perhaps becoming more and more obvious in our contemporary context is an awful lot of people who have perhaps sat in church every Sunday of their lives do not always know what God considers pleasing or what God considers sinful. And so part of the purpose of the law or the, the use of the law or the place of the law in the Christian life is going to be to continually instruct us in the will of God so that we might more eagerly do that. Why is God's word of law and gospel so difficult to apply to oneself? Yeah, it really is. I mean, I think there are a couple of reasons. One is simply when I am the one wrestling with sin— I lack the kind of objectivity to, to properly distinguish law and gospel. As a pastor, if, if someone comes to me and confesses their sin, I, I have a certain distance from them. And I can, I don't want to put it this way, but I can think about it a little more academically. Oh, I can see that you are sorrowful, and I know that God loves you, God is merciful, God has forgiven your sins. I can, without hesitation, proclaim that forgiveness to you. But when I'm inside my own head, I'm always tempted to say, well, yeah, I know this sin isn't perhaps in and of itself a terribly big deal, but it's the same sin that I commit every single day of my life, probably several times a day. God is probably fed up with me by this point. And that's the sort of thing that that sort of, I don't know quite what I want to call it, that, that sort of inward focus that obsession over, over my own sin and questions about my own sin, that's exactly the kind of thing that Satan wants to take advantage of. So I've got sort of Satan telling me, yeah, that's right. You commit this sin all the time. Yeah, that's right. That is a sin. And so it's very difficult for me to say, yes, but I am forgiven. And so I think this, this is a good opportunity to emphasize what a treasure that the Lutheran Church has retained in the practice of individual confession and absolution or private confession and absolution. I can go to my pastor and I can hear the, the external word. I can hear the words coming out of his mouth that whatever's going on in your head, whatever's going on in your heart, whatever doubts you might have, it just is the case that Christ died for you. Your sins are forgiven. Saying that to oneself is incredibly difficult. So what's the comfort of God's word when it is rightly applied? 
Yeah, the, the comfort in, in God's word rightly applied. Well, let's think about how the, the formula of Concord talks about God's law. It refers to the law as God's unchangeable or, or immutable will. So there's a comfort in knowing what God's will is, what God wants. But at the same time, we also know that it is God's will that none perish, but that all be saved. It is his will to forgive our sins. And so there's a great comfort in knowing that both God's word of law and his word of gospel are both ultimately aimed at the end or purpose of our forgiveness, our life, and our, our salvation. You know, that, that there's some comfort in knowing that, that God loves me enough that he is going to prick my conscience when it needs pricking, that I might turn to him in repentance so that he might do what he really wants to do, namely forgive my sins and call me his own child. Dr. Corey Moss is chairman and associate professor of history at Hillsdale College. He's author of a recent column for the Lutheran Witness titled Difficult or Easy? You can receive an annual digital and print subscription to the Lutheran Witness magazine for less than $20. Find out more at cph.org slash witness or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040. Interpreting the world from a Lutheran perspective, the Lutheran Witness magazine. Dr. Moss, thank you. Thank you, Todd. When we come back on this Thursday afternoon, October the 5th, we'll go through listener email and the issues, etc. comment line. Martin Luther on Mental Health, Practical Advice for Christians Today, is the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for October. It's written by Lutheran layman Dr. Stephen Saunders, professor of psychology at Marquette University. Martin Luther on Mental Health is published by Concordia Publishing House. Their phone number, 1-800-325-3040, or learn more at issuesetc.org. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for October, Martin Luther on Mental Health. Does this sound like your church budget process at the end of the year? You get last year's budget and go through with a committee line by line, maybe what we should spend next year. Maybe you have a prayer. But where's the word of God in this process? When do the people hear what the small catechism says about giving and why we do it? Contact us at LCMS Stewardship so that we can help you fix this process, put the word of God first, and put your congregation on a good fitting lcms.org slash stewardship. Hi, this is Pastor Eric Lang of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Gresham, Oregon. One thing I've asked of the Lord, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. Mount Hood, Multnomah Falls, the Oregon coast. Oregon is beautiful, but nothing compares to the beauty of the Lord's house. If you are vacationing in the Portland area, please come join us at Redeemer Lutheran Church in Gresham, where the liturgy lives and God's people worship as one. For more information, go to wherethelitergylives.org. Not everyone is comfortable with new technology. Dial-A Podcast gives all generations of your congregation an easy way to hear your sermons or even devotionals and Bible studies. Once you've completed a simple one-time setup, we take care of the rest. All your congregants have to do is dial the number from any phone to listen to your latest podcast, all at no additional cost to them. Dial-A Podcast. 
Extend the reach of your sermons. Get started at dialapodcast.com now. Declaring to you the whole counsel of God, you're listening to Issues Etc. Thanks to the following congregations for standing with us by becoming an Issues Etc. congregational sponsor. Calvary Lutheran, Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. Faith Lutheran, Vista, California. Hope Lutheran, Highland, Illinois. Lutheran Church of Our Redeemer, Peekskill, New York. Our Redeemer Lutheran, Dubuque, Iowa. Redeemer Lutheran, Benbrook, Texas. St. Athanasius Lutheran, Fairfax, Virginia. St. Paul Lutheran, Clorinda, Iowa. Trinity Lutheran, Austin, Texas. And Zion Lutheran, Columbus, Ohio. Find out how your confessional Lutheran church can support this worldwide outreach by including issues, etc. in your mission or advertising budget. Just go to issuesetc.org, click Support, Donate, and print a one-page flyer. When your congregation becomes an Issues Etc. sponsor, we'll publicize your church on the podcast, at our website, and in the Issues Etc. journal.